This is Steve Smith at WCG Patient Radio. WCG is a company focused on the ethical, safe, and efficient conduct of clinical trials for the benefit of patients with unmet medical needs. We're speaking today with Bryce Olson, who is the global strategist for Intel's Health and Life Sciences Group, is in a clinical trial that was and is using precision medicine as well as genomic sequencing and remote approaches for his stage four prostate cancer and is an outspoken patient advocate for the area of genomics and precision medicine with a powerful message on how this saves lives, including his own life. He is a musician and started a movement that uses the power of music to build awareness for new ways to fight cancer and bring molecular testing and precision medicine to other advanced cancer patients. He founded FACTS, which stands for Fighting Advanced Cancer Through Songs. Bryce Olson is a sought-after speaker, has been featured in numerous national publications, including the Washington Post, and has numerous YouTube videos in which he speaks and sings and gets the message out about how patients should repeat to their doctors, sequence me. We're pleased to have him speak with us today. Hello, Bryce. Hi, Steve. That was a, that was a good intro. Thank you. I appreciate that. You have an amazing career as a strategist for precision medicine at Intel, and I'm guessing uh, it, that work is fueled by a strong sense of purpose related to your own cancer diagnosis. Tell us about how those things came to be both happening at the same time, that you work at Intel and you have this cancer diagnosis, and specifically what your cancer and treatment has to do with precision medicine and genomic sequencing. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, you're 100% right that my career at Intel, specifically in the health and life sciences group with a focus on genomics and precision medicine is 100% fueled by my uh, cancer experience. And um, I think it was really kind of just driven by frustration that what I started to see in my work was happening in research, but it just wasn't being brought into the clinic. And um, to probably explain that best, let me just take you back to 2014 when I got diagnosed with really aggressive metastatic prostate cancer. Um, you know, I was really surprised. I was taken back by this in a huge way because there's really no history of, of prostate cancer in my family. I exercise every day. I'm, I'm very fit. Uh, I took care of my body. Um, and to have this happen to me was just such a huge surprise. And you know, I just, I didn't really know what to do. I was panicked. And so I followed my doctor's orders and I, I quickly kind of fell into what um, I would see as the standard of care. It was really kind of a one size fits all paradigm where regardless of whether we're unique individuals, we're just getting the same standard of care treatments. And, um, you know, I went through surgery and it didn't work. I went through standard chemotherapy using a drug that was developed back in the 50s. Um, and though I got probably about nine months before my cancer started growing again, I paid for it with six months of, you know, just really chemo induced sickness, you know, epic fatigue, blistering mouth sores, neuropathy in my feet that I still feel today. And, uh, I started to get really frustrated because once those drugs started to not work, the amount of standard of care drugs that were in front of me were really limited. And. I started to worry that I wasn't going to make it, that I wouldn't see my kid get out of elementary school and, and that I was going to die, you know? And 
so when I get back to work um, and I start working in the health and life sciences group, I see the polar opposite. Uh, I see massive amount of innovation going on in research settings. I see, you know, uh, bio, I see like um, bioinformaticists that are taking all of this massive amount of data uh, that is coming off of a genomic sequencing machine and they're looking at what's driving disease inside of the DNA and they're seeing mutations and genomic alterations that actually drive disease and then they're coming up with drugs that go after those and it's really that is really kind of precision medicine and I got really frustrated because it wasn't happening to me I'm seeing all this advancement happening in a research setting that's happening at you could argue um, exponential rates, but what's happening in the clinic was happening just like like step function, very linearly. And so I went to my doctor and I said, hey, I wanna get sequenced. I wanna get my cancer sequenced. I wanna understand what's driving my disease in the DNA. And um, they were a little surprised by that. You know, they hadn't really heard patients requesting that. And, you know, this was back in, you know, 2014. Um, but after pushing a while, they made that work for me. and Sure enough, I had uh, genomic variants that were actionable. There were uh, mutations that were in a pathway, uh, a cell signaling pathway, that there were actual drugs in phase one development that offered the promise to shut my cancer down. And I chased those drugs. I went to a clinical trial at Cedars-Sinai in uh, Beverly Hills, and it worked. I was able to shut my cancer down for two years because I got the right drug, right? I found the right drug for the right person at the right time. I found a drug that was built for what my cancer was using to, to grow. And so I became a huge proponent of that. And you know, ever since then, I've been following that approach. It's kind of a rinse and repeat. You know, if I get a new tumor, I go and I, I go diagnose it. I find out what's driving it through either a liquid biopsy that just looks at you know, what's being sloughed off from dead cancer cells into the blood, or I go and like actually have it biopsied and then profiled. And then whatever I find out, I take action on it in a more of an individualized way. And that's driven my work at Intel as well and just driving new innovation in that space. I, I know Intel um, is famous for, um, for chips and um, of course, massive computing that's made possible, which is a, a big part of genomic um, research and that kind of medical science you're talking about. Yeah. Um, exactly. So, did you um, did you find um, that um, your physicians um, were um, um, amenable to the routine uh, that the, it, once they got got going with uh, sequencing you, that they uh, it's easier now for you to um, go down that path and say time again, or and they're checking you for that? Is it or is it a um, kind of a custom battle each time you need to be resequenced? It's a great question. Um, I would say there's a, a lot has changed between 2014 and 2020. Uh, you know, when I first did this back in 2014, there really wasn't commercial diagnostic labs that would do this on behalf of a patient if their doctor, you know, farmed it out. There were limited, you know, mostly large academic cancer centers that were doing their own kind of homegrown testing. And that's how I originally got sequenced. I was doing it in uh, Portland, Oregon. Oregon at um, Oregon Health Sciences University, OHSU, and they had their own, they called it gene trails. It was a, a test that looked, for, that looked for genomic alterations in cancer, maybe about 30 or 40. 
and that was all I needed. I, I found a match when I did that. But, you know, if you flash forward to today, there are massive, you know, well-funded companies like Tempest, uh, Foundation Medicine, you know, all of these companies have massive amounts of genomic data along with treatment and outcome data that they've been able to triangulate. Um, so, you know, like Tempest has a third of all cancer patients' data now, they feel. And so when you get these large, massive databases that have genomic treatment and outcome data in it, and then you send them over your sample, um, they have a lot of data they can look at and compare you against what they see in their databases. And uh, I just feel like today, um, if you're an advanced cancer patient and you're going through the standard of care and you're running out of options and nobody is talking to you about genomics and how to profile your cancer in a unique way that's unique to you, then you got to demand it still. I mean, I, I still see doctors that don't offer this today, even in 2020. So as a patient, you, know, you still have got to demand it. And if you demand it, um, there's plenty of paths to get that stuff available for you now. You're in a clinical trial right now, and I know uh, that requires travel to get to the site, that it's in a different state from where you live. And many patients with many other diseases, are, as well as cancers, are concerned about the need to continue their clinical trial medications, yet they can't just go to trial visits as they could before COVID. Hospital may not be functioning that way right now, or there's a, just too much of a risk to their immune system. How has your routine of trial visits been changed by COVID and the need to protect yourself from exposure? Are there ways remote visits are being done for you? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. And it's funny, I am, um, I'm starting to change the way I view this almost by the day. Um, and what I mean by that is, so yeah, I'm, as you said, so I'm in a clinical trial that uh, the site that I go to for this trial is in San Diego. I live in Portland, Oregon. Um, in March, when things started to change and, and things started to get really restricted and there was a fear, especially in places like New York and New Jersey, where it was just starting to get out of control, uh, I got scared. Uh, I am immunocompromised. I've had cancer for a long time. The last thing I wanted to do was die in the short term of some respiratory virus when I've been trying to fight this thing for six and a half years and, you know, I've had success. So I hunkered down. I stopped going to my trial. Um, I missed two different cycles for it. And I wanted to try to bring the trial to me. So when I looked at the components of the clinical trial for me, I, I saw four. There were uh, labs, uh, there was the clinical visit itself, there was the imaging, you know, to get to understand what, you know, where the disease is through CT scans and MRIs and bone scans and stuff like that. And then for me, I had an infusion of an immunotherapy drug. And what I was able to do was get most of that stuff delivered to me. So. Um, my drug trial consists of two drugs, an oral drug, a pill, and then an infusion. Well, I could get the oral drug shipped to my house. That wasn't a problem. I could do clinical visits via, uh, you know, telemedicine, right? I think in some ways the technology for telehealth and telemedicine has been there for so long. COVID has been a real driver for adoption of this. And it's really easy to get on the phone or get on a video conference with my doctor and just go over things. Like that was easy. Um, labs was actually fairly easy as well. There's a lot of mobile phlebotomists that can come to your house and draw blood. But the infusion, I just couldn't do. I, I couldn't figure out a way to do that remotely. 
And so I eventually mustered up the courage to travel. And I'll tell you what, I, I think that if you take the right precautions, you know, if you wear an N95 mask, or at least just somehow double up on a mask that's really going to be effective, maybe take the extra precaution of wearing a face shield or at least glasses and just be really, really diligent, you know, to not be touching your eyes. Don't be touching your nose. Don't eat anything without washing your hands and just be very, very cautious. I think you can, as an immunocompromised patient, travel and be safe. Um, I don't think I would advise doing what I did, which was missing treatments. I, I'm, I'm talking to you, Steve, right now, wearing this back brace um, because I'd have a massive uh, spinal fusion uh, because cancer got away from me and actually started um, strangling my spinal cord. And I had to have emergency uh, spinal surgery about six weeks ago. Uh, if I would have stayed on the trial and not skipped it, would I have found that early? I, I don't know. And I, I don't know if it would have made a difference. But um, looking back on it now, uh, I think I think you can take the right precautions and still be very careful and still go through with your trial um, and do travel. You just have to be extra careful and extra diligent. Yes, there are some procedures that's um, not possible, I guess, to do outside of a medical center. And it is, um, although heartening, to see um, more flexibility happening in some of those obstacles to doing taking medicines at home. Um, for those that can be taken at home, for the flexibility um, that we're, should, we should see is are the kinds of obstacles that should be removed. Like if payers didn't traditionally cover something in the home because they wanted yeah. to make sure you know there was good medical supervision, but now there's a different world with COVID, and um, that that obstacle should be removed. But you're talking about something that needs to be done at a clinic, I, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, I am. I think like. You know, for to your point, if there's things that if if you're not on a trial, for example, and you're just, you know, getting your you're going to your visit, you're going to your doctor visit every you know month, and you're getting your oral drug, and I mean all that stuff could be done remotely. You you can do virtual visits. You could have your drug shipped to your house. There's a lot of things that you can do remotely, and you know, in some ways, I think COVID's been I hate to say it, but a blessing to accelerate technology innovation that's been there for a long time and just hasn't been adopted. Um, and the best example of that would be telehealth and telemedicine. Um, but, you know, I think if you're scared, you're so scared of COVID that you're dropping out of your trial or you're um, just not going to go and uh, explore different options because you're so freaked out about COVID, I, I think that's where you have to you have to look at it differently and, and maybe just take a little bit more risk because this thing's going to be around for a while. We don't know when we're going to get a vaccine. Um, I think there's, you know, more knowledge today on if you were to get a, if you were to get sick, you know, drugs like dex, dexamethasone and other things like that might be able to stave off um, an acute respiratory attack. And we're knowing more about those kind of things. So I, I wouldn't put it off. Um, especially since doing so could, you know, get you in a situation like what, what, I, what happened to me where the cancer got away from me and I had to take emergency action to keep it contained. You know, I, I don't think patients want to do that either, you know. So with all this going on in your life, um, you actually, like, like a lot of patients, uh, sometimes people may forget that patients have other aspects to their lives too. And um, you're, you show lots of leadership in um, uh, educating others and broadcasting the word about genomic sequencing. 
in an engaging way. Um, tell us about your music. You founded the organization called FACTS, F-A-C-T-S, an acronym. Um, and I have seen your great YouTube video of you in a recording studio playing the guitar and singing with a group of very talented musicians. Who are they and how did that all come together? Yeah, yeah. No, it was a really fun project. I was, you know, I'm fortunate through Intel that I'm able to reach the business side of cancer. And what I mean by that is, you know, we're dealing all the time with with pharmaceutical companies and researchers and doctors and bioinformaticists and and uh, other technologists and entrepreneurs in the space. But I don't get to deal with patients that much because I'm more on the business side. And so I was looking for ways that I could engage with other cancer patients or uh, people who care and love cancer patients, like maybe their children. And I was trying to figure out, well, what could I do to reach them? And I thought, well, music might be an interesting approach. If I could use music as a way to raise awareness for a new way to fight cancer through genomics, then that might be an interesting approach. And so I started talking, I'm a hobbyist, I love writing songs. And um, I started talking to musician friends in Portland, Oregon about this desire to put together an album that would be, you know, really focused on, um, you know, building awareness for this new way to fight cancer and what the, what people going through this, you know, feel and experience and, and, and when I started talking to people about it, I got a lot of excitement from musicians in Portland and that kind of spread to other musicians and singers across Portland. And that even led to some interesting uh, meetings with some fairly well-known folks like uh, Jenny Conley from the Decemberists and um, uh, Martha Davis from the Motels. You know, those are bands that a lot of people know. Those two people are uh, cancer survivors themselves. And so I put together kind of an ensemble of musicians and singers, um, many of them, which are cancer survivors themselves, to help me put this album together. So I, yeah, so I wanted to use music as a, a way to raise awareness for a new way to fight cancer. Uh, music's always been very therapeutic for me as a way to process feelings of, you know, frustration and anger and sadness and and those stories are, are what are told in this facts album that we put together. And early on, um, I just started to talk to musicians and performers across Portland, uh, where I where I live, and I told them about this project, how I wanted to, you know, help reach people who wouldn't necessarily be thinking about genomics, but maybe reach them through music. And I started to get a lot of interest uh, locally in Portland, and that also led to you know, new introductions to powerhouse gospel singers and performers like Jonna Street, uh, who was an American Idol contestant, and then Saida Wright, who used to back up Prince and was a member of the new power generation. And then people like Alonzo Chadwick, who is, you know, he's a premier vocalist in the Pacific Northwest. And then that opened up doors to internationally known people like uh, Jenny Conley of the Decemberists and Martha Davis of the Motels. Uh, those two people are also cancer survivors themselves. So it was just a very fun project uh, that just really used the power of music to raise awareness for a new way to fight cancer. Uh, we launched the effort at South by Southwest uh, in 2017. And that video that you're talking about, yeah, that, that got a lot of um, sharing on Facebook 
And I thought that was really nice because within like two weeks or so, that video got passed around on Facebook about 30,000 times. We really used Facebook as the way to scale that message. Um, and that felt really good to me. The, the other thing that came out of it was I needed something cool and edgy when I spoke at South by Southwest and I wanted to connect into rock and roll. And so I, need a, I needed something that would convey a message in a very succinct way. And so one of the uh, singers on the album is also a designer. Her name is Michelle DeCourcy. And she designed the dress that Nora Jones wore when she won all the Grammys. And I just said, you know, Michelle, can you help me create something really cool? What I see in my, in my mind's eye is like sequence me, you know, just a simple message that I want to wear. And she came up with this punk rock kind of cool logo. And so I wore that t-shirt when I spoke and, and that became kind of my call to action really um, along with that fax effort. That, that's the t-shirt that looks like a heavy metal logo of some sort, right? Yeah. Sequence yeah. Me, that's right. That one. Yeah. I've seen your picture yep. in it. And so it's, it, it takes up something that's fun and engaging and it draws attention. So you can get this very serious message across rather than, you know, um, people saying, I'm going to talk to you about cancer. <laughs> and then some of the audience may not hear the message, but everybody needs to hear those yeah. messages. You never know. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. And I think that also what I found is that, um, you know, that kind of led to more and more conferences and other groups wanting me to come talk. And, you know, I spoke at, at HIMSS, which is the big healthcare event. Um, I spoke at Consumer Electronics Show, CES. I spoke at the Personalized Medicine Coalition at Harvard Medical School, um, South by Southwest, like I said. And, and what would happen is I'd wear that shirt and I'd get bombarded after I was done talking with, uh, you know, people that wanted to know more. And then a lot of people were also asking me, like, hey, can I get that shirt? How do I get that shirt? So I, <laughs> I was going to um, say, I bet you sold a lot of shirts. <laughs> yeah, well, what I did is I started this, uh, I started a little movement and, and a website um, that anybody can go to. It's, it's sequenceme.org. And that's really kind of, I built that to help scale um, the knowledge that I had and to really kind of accelerate uh, patients' understanding of what this stuff is. So if you go to sequenceme.org, you can engage with what I think is the world's first um, HIPAA-compliant genomic speaking chatbot. So that chatbot will talk to you about genomics for cancer. And the whole goal is like, go to that site, learn about what this is, and then go demand it with your doctor. So if nobody's talking to you about this, learn about genomics, how it can open up new doors to fight cancer, and then go demand it. Demand that you can get your tumor sequenced and, and ask your doctors to open up some new doors that would allow you to fight it differently. That's kind of the well, whole that's just, that's just very, uh, very interesting and inspiring how you are connecting um, phys uh, physicians and people who work in clinical settings and patients themselves with these advances in technology and life sciences that if overlooked, might cost somebody their life. So um, the way you're yeah. doing it is is quite engaging. So um, thank you very much for speaking with us today, Bryce. I'm sorry we're out of time, but I'm hoping people will go to uh, your website. What is it again? The sequence? Yeah, sequenceme.org. Sequenceme.org. And check out your videos on YouTube. That's for Bryce Olson, O-L-S-O-N. Thank you for speaking with us today, Bryce. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. 
We've been speaking today with Bryce Olson, global strategist at Intel, a musician and stage four prostate cancer patient. This is Steve Smith at WCG Patient Radio. Special thanks to our executive producer, Lauren Osmore, and production staff, Isabel Andresen, Roxana Guilford-Blake, technical director, David Fogel, and head of studio, Amy Hutnick. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>